Hello, fellow conceptual sojourners, inadvertently caught in the lockdowns of the mind. Welcome all of you tensed to dispense with binaries, categories and hashtag trending influencers. I am Professor William Watkin, philosopher, theorist, writer and zealous proselytizer of the philosophies of indifference, indetermination, the non-binary and the bioviolent. And this, as they habitually say, is my podcast. And casting from the pot of my mind for the next few weeks at least are extracts, musings and arguments cold and cadged from my latest book, Bioviolence, how the powers that be make us do what they want. Warning, this is not a TED talk. I repeat, this is not a TED talk. I will not ask you to lean into this world's lies, nor will I cheerfully hail you as guys. I sincerely hope your productivity goes down. I earnestly hope all our productivities go down. Otherwise what? We're doomed, of course, doomed. I consciously do not practice mindfulness. People and animals were hurt in the making of this world. Plastics, as far as I understand them, are bad. Bioviolence Tapes, Part 4. Michel Foucault, Biopolitics and the Abolition of Violence. The Abolition of Violence. Michel Foucault is famous for the invention of many concepts, but what is not often mentioned is that on the 17th of March 1976, he effectively abolished one, the concept of violence. It happened almost by accident during the now famous final lecture of the course he was offering at the Collège de France on the topics of knowledge and war. The previous 10 lectures were all scintillating, but it was the 11th that was to prove to be world shattering, for it was during this last talk of his academic year that Foucault was to inadvertently prove that violence, political violence anyway, was in a sense no longer tenable a curious outcome for a man who'd made his name through a fascination with modes of coercion and control that more than bordered on sadomasochism. Foucault had been appointed to the Collège de France in 1970 after much behind-the-scenes lobbying and favours called him. It was in many ways a dream appointment that asked of the scholar merely that he gave one lecture a week to an audience made up of literally anyone who flannered by. Foucault was energised initially by the arrangement, but by 1976, the attractions of the role had begun to diminish in direct proportion, it would seem, to the growing success he was enjoying, or rather not enjoying. The pressure to perform had become a source of stress, an anxiety that was not alleviated by the setup of the famous auditorium, which was both too intimate, you had to walk through the audience to get to the podium, which many found unnerving, and too distancing, with Foucault unhappy with simply holding court to crowds of avid listeners, yearning instead for the more dialogic nature of a seminar. 
let us assume that for all intents and purposes, the 17th of March 1976 was a typical day at the lectern. Foucault arrives on time and yet in haste at the imposing façade of the collège and makes his way inside to the main auditorium. There are students everywhere and he has to almost force his way into the room. Moving through the cavernous chamber to the podium at the far end, he steps over recumbent bodies, his papers clasped to his chest. He is dressed in a smart jacket and his trademark turtleneck sweater. Foucault's bald pate seems to glow. His teeth are slightly too much for his mouth. My, is he handsome, bathed in that extra aura of celebrity that follows him wherever he goes like an expensive cologne. An altogether different miasma of patchouli oil, tobacco and other more recherche substances lightly perfumes the otherwise fusty air. The desk at the front is so full of microphones that Foucault has to push them to one side to find space for his notes. He does this textually, his tutting recorded for posterity. There are no preliminary niceties. Instead, he switches on a lamp which seems to do little to dispel the 400-year-old gloom that pervades the place. Admittedly dotted around there are stucco lamp holders, but these appear designed to almost accentuate the gloaming of reverential learning rather than to flood it with the enlightening rays of new knowledge. The great thinker sets to it, a racehorse in an otherwise empty field, because he is the field. And with each sentence, he creates the field. That's why so many people are here, to see him in full tilt, clearing all intimidating obstructions, taking his very life into his hands as he careens ever forward. Foucault declaims loudly through the old-fangled Bakelite mic, his voice reverberating from the speakers that hang as incongruously around the ancient hall as tropical fruits adorning the pollarded bowers of the nearby Bois de Boulogne would be deemed to be. He talks briskly but clear. If he took time to look up from the lectern and try to establish some kind of rapport with his audience, he might note with grim satisfaction that the 300-seat theatre is occupied by at least 500 souls. He might then remember that the second lecture theatre, somewhere in the building where his voice is being remotely transmitted at the same time, and imagine that this one is as equally packed with bodies, which indeed it is. But he doesn't look up, partly out of concentration, mainly due to dismay at the numbers and their terrifying passivity at the feet of the unwilling yet naturally selected master. At precisely 7.15pm, he stops. He's been speaking for just over an hour. Students rush, rush to his desk, not as you might expect to ask questions, but to switch off their tape recorders, which they then hug to themselves as they leave like so many precious offspring. Foucault oversees their departure impassive. All it would take is one question, he reflects, one query, and the conversation could begin. But week after week, year after year, the Inquisition hardly ever convenes. This lack of interaction, no doubt fostered by the place, the stultifying French system, and Foucault's own aloofness, 
was a sort of sadness to the great man. He once reflected. As there is no feedback channel, the lecture becomes a sort of theatrical performance. I relate to the people who are there as though I were an actor or an acrobat. And when I finish speaking, there's this feeling of total solitude. The loneliness of the long distance runner who has left his fellow competitors far behind. The isolation of an actor in a perpetual one-hander, yearning for something other than the solipsism of soliloquy. The high wire act of true thinking where there is only room for one genius on the rope. Who knows, perhaps the students mistook his melancholy for displeasure as he gathered up his materials and strode from the room that momentous evening. What is certain is that by 1976, the post at the college was proving to be something akin to a hindrance of success. In short, Foucault was too far ahead of his time, his ideas too high above the heads of his ardent followers. All things considered then, it was unlikely that on that mid-March day he had the time or inclination to reflect on the impact of what he just proclaimed, his first coherent formalisation of what is now called biopolitics, certainly, but also the invention of an all-bot and possible chimera, a world of coercion without harm, force or injury that we're calling bioviolence on his belated behalf. Part two. You've never heard of biopolitics? When I began my career in philosophy back at Sussex University in 1991, the concept of biopolitics was never mentioned, even though the MA in critical theory I was taking was probably the most cutting edge in the world and deeply in debt to the work of Michel Foucault. One reason for this is the deleterious effects the Collège de France gig had had on Foucault's publication record. His last published work in his lifetime was The History of Sexuality, Volume 1, which exploded onto the world scene the same year as the lecture inadvertently abolished violence by inventing biopolitics. After that, until his premature death in 1987, at the age of 57, no other major publication under Foucault's name came out. All his energies, disastrously depleted towards the end by the onset of the AIDS virus, went into those damn lectures. Lectures which, when they finally began to appear in print, transformed our conceptualization of what his biographer James Miller calls perhaps the single most famous intellectual in the world. Even, when bio, even then, biopolitics was not the first big concept to emerge from the publication of the lectures. That was probably what Foucault called governmentality. The initial invisibility of biopolitics is certainly not due to lack of availability. The final pages of the history of sexuality concern themselves with a pretty complete sketch of biopolitics literally riddled with brilliantly memorable quotations on the topic. It was the book that everyone read when I was a student, being mercifully short and gratifyingly sexy, but no one ever mentioned the bit on biopolitics as far as I recall. Even the publication in French of Society Must Be Defended, the unparalleled lecture series capped by the speech on biopolitics, didn't suddenly make biopolitics more widely intelligible, to use a very Foucauldian word. 
perhaps because that lecture series is primarily a consideration of war and violence, concepts very dear to Foucault's heart, but which typify more the other modes of power that biopolitics slowly regulated out of pole position, namely sovereign and disciplinary power. When Foucault picks up the thread the following year in the exhilarating series of lectures now called Security Territory Population, a triumvirate of concepts so prescient of the issues of our globalised age that it's almost uncanny to think the lectures were delivered in the late 1970s, it is with the promise of a full course on biopower. But this intention fizzles out after the third lecture and instead... Foucault turns his attention to the aforementioned governmentality, a great and important topic, but not quite as great and not quite as important as biopower has proven to be. Then, another year later, when he gives the course called The Birth of Biopolitics, rather than rap on biopolitics, the entire course is another preternaturally prophetic demolition of our much-vaunted liberalism. It's an amazing course but it doesn't exactly do what it says on the tin. After that, the biopolitical trail goes cold until its importance is excavated by one Giorgio Agamben in 1995 with the publication of his controversial and game-changing portrait of modernity, politics and life, Homo Saka, Sovereign Power and Bare Life. Agamben's studies in Sendury, lighting the fuse on what has become a dramatic conflagration of ideas from all spheres of intellectual life that we think is now called biopolitics, as casually as we might say feminism, or as we used to say, Marxism. We caught up with Foucault in the end then, but only thanks to another unparalleled, field-defining resource, Agamben, and only after an unforgivable hiatus of some two decades. If intellectuals such as myself neglected biopolitics over long, we've more than made up for being so remiss in recent times. Idle one morning, I did a search for books published in the last 10 years that had biopolitics in the title. Amazon returned over 600 entries like an overexcited puppy. When intrigued, I did another excavation on Google Scholar for articles on biopolitics in the past decade, Google, in all its nominative hyperbole, suggested an improbable 60,000 articles. And that's not including all the concepts associated with biopolitics, like uh, biopower, regulation, thanatopolitics, bare life, the homosaka, immunisation, sovereignty, security, surveillance, and, of course, cyborgs. Indeed, if ever you were looking for another name to replace the problematic Age of Terror, you might call ours the Age of Biopolitics. But what exactly is biopolitics? I hear you mutter, just in earshot. Permit me to explain. fellow conceptual sojourners, inadvertently caught in the lockdowns of the mind. Warning, this is not a TED talk. I repeat, 
This is not a TED talk. Welcome all of you tends to dispense with binaries, categories and hashtag trending influencers. I consciously do not practice mindfulness. I'm Professor William Watkin, philosopher, theorist, writer and zealous proselytizer of the philosophies of indifference, indetermination, the non-binary and the bioviolence. And this, as they habitually say, is my podcast. People and animals were hurt in the making of this world. And casting from the pot of our mind for the next few weeks, at least, are extracts, musings and arguments called and cadged from my latest book, Bioviolence, How the Powers That Be Make Us Do What They Want. Plastics, as far as I understand them, are bad.